thought the hold was not going to be very good, then I would feel the need to apologize for being late. It is a first for me, at least in this country, when we do meetings in India and Africa, this is normal. But it is the first time I've ever been half an hour late to a yes. meeting that we were holding. In general, the meetings that we're holding in other countries, though, are more anointed. So that's a good portent for what's about yeah, to happen. Yeah. Now seems like a very good time for you to decide whether you want to get home on time and defrost your turkey. Or if you'd like to feast on the abundance from God's house. Yeah. Psalm 36, 7 through 9 says, How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Truthfully, you will not get home while it is still light outside. But you will go home greatly enlightened tonight. You see, we knew that you would make the what Mary has chosen is better kind of choice with oh, us tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Tonight, you will see the seeds of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion experience. Yeah. Tonight, you will grow in respect for the true Israelite Hebrew youths that are the good figs Jeremiah prophesied about. Tonight, you may even see the kingdom of God in new ways that have been long obscured by overly allegorizing and spiritualizing things that are indeed real, tangible, and physical realities coming upon this world. So to set the context of the chapter we're about to read, you should know that Nebuchadnezzar is in the third year of his rulership and the second year that he has ascended to the kingship. And we have a slide to help you remember that. You guys remember this slide? Yes. yes. Timeline in the book of Daniel according to the scriptural account, Hallelujah. not the speculative account. You can see here the third year of Jehoiakim corresponds to Daniel 1.1. This is Nebuchadnezzar's year of ascension. We talked about this at great length last week, but he had begun his year and was reaching his first in the Babylonian accounting. This is also around the same time as the first siege of Jerusalem where Daniel and his companions were taken captive and brought back to Babylon. You guys see second year of training? This yeah. corresponds to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which again, in the Babylonian accounting, is the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It's past the point we achieved the 12-month mark, the year of ascension. Third is our training year. This is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, according to their accounting, which is our context this evening in Daniel chapter 1. So that we haven't just thrown something at you without the scriptural basis for it, we have our next slide for you. Daniel 1.1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is clearly Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year. And it's tied also to a year in Jehoiakim's reign, his third year. So in Jeremiah 25, 1, 
the word came to Jeremiah concerning all of the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. He's advanced a year. Son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That makes it unassailable that the Babylonians used the ascension method, meaning that from zero to 12 months, it's not counted as a king's year. He has to achieve a year before we count it as a year. And that's why the staggering. So this was Nebuchadnezzar's first official year. Tonight, we pick up in the text in Daniel 2.1 in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. And his mind being troubled and he could not sleep. Understanding that saves you from chronological issues as you go through this book. So also, tonight you have to embrace what the climate that Nebuchadnezzar's transition into power must have been like. Remember, Nabopolazar is Nebuchadnezzar's father, and he has recently died while Nebuchadnezzar is fighting at a very major battle in his career. This slide is going to refresh your memory. The Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. established Babylon as the dominant power all the way to the border of Egypt. In 604 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar campaigned in Palestine and conquered Ashkelon. Jehoiakim quickly gave allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, who had recently been crowned king of Babylon after his father's death shortly after the Battle of Carchemish. So this is a very chaotic time. While he is fighting in the Battle of Carchemish, his, father's, his father dies. Can you imagine what kind of questions there are? He has to rush all the way home to get the throne so that nobody takes it. Wow. This next slide that we have is the overview of the world events that lead up to tonight's amazing chapter. And this slide is the same timeline, but in a different format that might help you a little bit. We want to direct you to the screen to the gigantic red arrow on the yes. right side. Okay? Yeah. That's what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> so between the years of 609 and 597, we have Jehoiakim. We have the first siege of Jerusalem. This is on Nebuchadnezzar's return from defeating Assyria. This also correlates to the exile of Daniel and his companions. Look at the bottom right of the screen for us. Nebuchadnezzar's father dies. And Nebuchadnezzar is in his year of ascension as king of Babylon. These years are counted like the birth of a child. So 0 to 12 months is ascending into his first official year of kingship. So tonight, as we pick up in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is in the earliest years of his kingship. And you'll be able to see that there were at least, they were at least tumultuous as our current Brandon administration. That's true. So imagine these events in that you have inherited your dead father's advisor. And in that order, it's not your father's dead advisors, it's <laughs> your dead father's advisors. And you will better engage with chapter two. Let's have Abin Bola, the anointed man, pray for us, and then we'll have Linton read. Father, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we are eager for your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you will part the heavens. Lord, that you will rain manna from heaven, Lord, that we can gather and, and eat, Lord God, that tonight together as a family. Lord, help us, Lord, to engage your word. Lord, help us to put into practice as these men, as these pastors teach us. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, Lord God. 
we want to give you a hint. Imagine that you're in the first few years of your reign and you don't know who you can and can't trust in the palace. That will make this make more sense to you. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king, then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do the thing the king asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live amongst men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Ariok, the, the commander of the king's guards, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke with him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officers, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for more time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel, then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you. O oh God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. 
Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay in your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the reveal of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of bark clay and part bark baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it even as you saw iron mixed with the clay. As the toes were partially iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery.
Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. My, my, we have some extraordinary things to cover this evening. Yeah. Yeah. By the end of tonight, a very physical, real kingdom of God will be overcoming and filling the earth. Yeah. We have a lot of good things to get into. As Brother Linton begins to pick back up in verse 1, I want to remind you of the context that we covered just a few minutes ago. In the breadth of things that we just read, verse 1 is starting out in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. His father just died, and he had to rush back in, take control, and he's beginning to rule. Now in his first two years ruling the Babylonian Empire alone, you're going to hear what is happening to him in the situation that we pick up in. Brother Linton, if you get verse 1 for us. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. Now, something that would be very easy to miss right up front, that's not obvious, is the fact that it's so easily read past in commentaries and teachings on this subject that men don't consider, is that the very first verse says Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural. These words indicate a prolonged season rather than a singular event. Something has been troubling him, not troubled him once. As this is very reminiscent of Genesis 41, verse 1, which I'm going to read to you. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Joseph, a forefather of Daniel, a patriarch of Israel, had been taken captive into prison, and he was in the court. Two years after a cupbearer had received the successful interpretation of his dreams by Joseph. They were in the prison together. He interpreted his dreams for him, and two years later, he's brought before the king. The king of the world began to have dreams of his own that he needed help with because they were troubling him in his soul. Genesis 41.8 out of the ESV says, So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all of the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Sounds eerily similar, doesn't it? Yes. Pharaoh, like Nebuchadnezzar, was troubled by his dreams. And it took an anointed Jew who was the only one that could interpret them. That's a repeating pattern in the Bible. Yeah. Genesis 41, verse 25 in the ESV says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. You see, in both cases, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh, the dreams are speaking a repeating matter and are considered one message or one dream. Multiple dreams, but considered one message. More importantly, in both cases, there is only one people group on earth that can help said Gentile king, a Jew in the midst of that kingdom. Yeah. We will not continue to go through the numerous parallels because there are many things that we hope to cover tonight. But in both cases, the issue 
was considered firmly decided, and this was attested to by the repetition, the sleeplessness, and troubling of the monarch prior to receiving the revelation from the Jewish people, both in Genesis and in Daniel, similar instances. Verse 2. That really helps us frame what's going to happen in verses 2 and 3, so be thinking about what we just said as we read these next two verses. But the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to, to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So, whatever the difference, the differences might have been between these dreams that he was having, there was apparently a very, very strong, repetitious theme that Nebuchadnezzar was able to grab a hold of, and that it particularly troubled him in the same way that Pharaoh was troubled back in Genesis chapter 41. There was some sort of thread through these dreams as he contemplated them, as he stayed up late at night because they were bothering him so much. He had an overall idea, a main topic that was threaded through every dream that he had. As we move forward in the text, it is possible to see variations in the definitions of the following terms. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, or Chaldeans, is what the text says. Since they are being spoken of as a group, we've elected tonight to avoid that matter altogether. Other than to say that the word Chaldean is usually a geographical designation, but it may be so associated with these other terms that it is used interchangeably. So when, when the text says Chaldean, it could be a geographical term, or the word Chaldean could actually be connotatively describing these groups of people. A little bit like seeing a guy in a bar in New York that has a hat and spurs on and called the name Tex. The geography is so associated with astrology that you might call an astrologer, although he did not reside in Babylon, a Chaldean. Or if you're more familiar with first century texts, the way that people referred to a Corinthian girl. It could mean that she lives in Corinth, or it could mean that she makes money in an unwholesome way. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Let's continue to verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Now, let's review. Uh, well, before we go to the, the slide that is review, I want to say that the Septuagint says that the astrologers answered Syristi the best I have. And the Masoretic text says Aramaic. This is because both are names of the language spoken by the majority of the biblical world at the time. Now let's show you a slide from last week. You see that Daniel chapter 1 is in Hebrew. Then we have chapters 2 through 7 that are in Aramaic. And then we transfer back to Hebrew for chapters 8 through 12. Now in reviewing this slide, you will remember that this is the transition into Aramaic, chapter 2. So we have a language change. As we go into verse 5, take notice of the initial confidence displayed by the wise men. You remember that? O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Well, their confidence is about to fall faster than our president's polling numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. 
If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces oh. and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Yeah. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. We'll start out by saying if you do just a little language research, the word pile of rubble <laughs> is not pile of rubble. It's a little more graphic than that. It makes flowers grow. <laughs> it attracts flies. Nebuchadnezzar has an interesting professional development pro program going here. <laughs> Real motivating, you know? He has a program with its own internal methods of self-correction. It uh, ensures that there's no nonsense. Might be great for a few of the single guys in the work life. When you consider the timeline of Nebuchadnezzar's rise to kingship, you guys catch how harsh that uh, professional development program was? Yeah. Considering the timeline of Nebuchadnezzar's rise to kingship, it seems likely that he is a bit skeptical of his advisors. We don't know why for certain. Perhaps there was some bad blood, so to speak, with his father. Maybe some counsel that wasn't great. For whatever reason at this point, he's not looking at them with uh, rose-colored glasses. He's skeptical. Now, that might be because he just inherited them from his father's reign and he has some disdain because he didn't get to pick them. We're not certain exactly why, but I believe the text will illuminate it as we continue. But on a historical note, in this season of Israel's history, they too were being plagued by lying prophets and counselors. Yeah. We're going to take a look at Jeremiah 14, 14 through 15 with you. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them, or appointed them, or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and Famine. What an interesting situation. I don't know what caused the skepticism for Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors. Maybe they used to address his father in the same way they do him. O king, live forever. And of course he didn't. That kind of uh, cuts, cuts their spiritual advice's efficacy down, doesn't it? I noticed that people love preachers when they tell them things they aren't true until the consequence of their life catches up with them. Yeah. And then they don't love those preachers. Yeah. I'd rather just tell the truth the first time and deal with it as we go. What you've just heard Judah read from Jeremiah is roughly the same time period. You know, Jeremiah's got some chronological issues that we covered when we went through it. But the point is, both nations were being plagued by the same problem. There were lots of men that were spiritual advisors that their advice was not worth any more than those houses piles of uh, rubble or the Democratic National Platform, however you think about that. <laughs> when the standard-bearing nation has this kind of problem, then of course the pagan nations do. See, the nation of God is supposed to set the standard for what spiritual advice looks like. The standard for what truth-telling looks like. And no wonder there's liars in the Babylonian palace. There had been liars in the Judean king's palace. And everybody loved them for it. 
So in this time of Jeremiah, the prophets led to the demise of the nation. And Nebuchadnezzar is benefiting from the demise of the nation. But do you know what he doesn't want? He doesn't want false prophecies being given to him that lead to the demise of his nation. That's, thank God the answer is always the same, isn't it? Yes. We need men like Jeremiah, men like Ezekiel. Men like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to stand up and speak the truth in love. I could do with a few less nice Christians and more truthful Christians. It'd be a whole lot better for you to be seen as a brutally honest person that represented God well than just a nice person that was scared to hurt anybody's feelings. The answer is always the same. In an age of darkness and lying prophets, somebody has to have the courage to stand up and tell the truth. We want that. We learn that from reading this writing. It teaches us how to live in this kind of historical context. As we move on to verses 7 and 9, you're going to see that there is a situation being set up for men that God knew that they would tell the truth. Listen to verse 7. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, then there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Now, if there was any doubt about Nebuchadnezzar's mistrust, these verses prove it. (laughs) I am certain that you are trying to gain time. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. Do you hear a mistrust in Nebuchadnezzar towards his uh, magi, whatever you want to call them? See, what's happening is a stage is being set up. He's surrounded by a pantheon of lying prophets and men who have no spiritual ability. But it's important to remember that in these dark and lying days that our God may just be setting up an impossible situation only to reveal himself as the God of heaven and the God of the impossible. Perhaps God is setting the stage so that these men, these these teenage lovers of Torah would stand up and tell the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 10 and 11. The astrologers answered the king. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Oh, they're starting to panic now. (laughs) No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Well, before you go on to verse 11, is that true? Is verse 10 true? No. No. No, obviously there was not an understanding of the book of Genesis in the story of Joseph. Because there was a king, there was a pharaoh who asked someone in that profession to interpret his dreams, and guess what? He did it, and it was written for the rest of time. Those enchanters, magicians, astrologers, they're making false accusations, false assumptions. But the CNN and MSNBC website said that it had been fact-checked. Censorship. (laughs) What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among Okay, so not only do we see a blatant ignorance about the book of Genesis and what happened with Joseph and Pharaoh, more importantly, we see two very key, 
very pivotal questions that all dark times must see answered. We have a slide for you. These are the two questions that are revealed in verses 10 and 11. Number one, is there a people on earth that can hear from God? That's a good question. Passage presents it to us. The second one, is there a people on earth that God lives among? Those are some good questions, and we want you to meditate on them, write them down, because in the coming verses, we're going to come back to those questions. While the wise men made these declarative statements, the chapter will reveal that God took them as questions that he desired to answer later on in the text. Are you surprised to find out that God wants us to know that there is a people on earth that can hear from God and that there is a people on earth that God took for himself to live among? See, what looks like a terrible situation is actually God just showing off a little bit. His nation has been taken into captivity at his hand. And yet, he told the nation after founding, the nations around you will see these laws I've given you and your interactions with them and me, and they'll say, what nation is so close to God as to have him hear them when when they pray? Deuteronomy 4 is at play here. And what nation was that? Now, as we move on to verse 12, this is Nebuchadnezzar's response to his wise men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. It's like a midterm election happening. (laughs) So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Wow. He, He had a crazy response to this to go and kill all the wise men and I can imagine after everything that he's gone through in his second year he's troubled and he's responding not just to his own inner turmoil but to the lack of affluence of the men around him and so he orders not just all the wise men this also includes Daniel and his friends Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah now they just escaped destruction by surviving the siege of Jerusalem and now they're once again in desperate peril. Yeah. They can't seem to catch a break. But no, this is not because they violated the law, but it's solely due to them li- living in despotic times. Now, as we move to Psalm 116, 5 and 6, we're going to unpack this. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Amen. Come on. The Lord protects the simple hearted. When I was in great need, great need, he saved me. Saints, this has always been the pattern, a repeating pattern throughout history for Israelites, true Israelites who stood for God in his days and his times. They survived the siege of Jerusalem, and yet, once again, they're under the gun, and annihilation looks like it is certain. We have a slide for you that is from a 13th century rabbi commenting on this kind of subject. This is Nachmanides. They call him Rabbi Ramban. Not Rambam, Ramban. And it's been written in my Bible since I found it. Precisely at the time 
where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for our future generations. Yeah, that's, that's an understatement, isn't it? From the days of Moses, when babies were slaughtered solely for being Jewish, but a deliverer arose, to the days of Esther, when an edict of annihilation was issued, and the deliverer arose. To the days that we're reading about right now in Daniel, the solution to the dark dilemma always arises from the nation that God chose for himself, Amen. Israel. Yeah. And that's an important facet. When you read the book of Daniel, you tend to read Daniel as an individual, which is wrong. He's in a team. Yeah. And then when you realize that he's in a team... When we see Azariah and Mishael and Hananiah, then you forget that the point is that they are Torah-observant Jews. If we can put this book back in its context and read them as the best of what Israel has to offer and the thing that God was always aiming at, you will begin to understand God's purpose for Israel. A deliverer is going to arise because if the deliverer doesn't arise then God will not achieve the goal that he stated when he set out to make Israel as a nation. Wow. Yeah. We're going to see something special about Daniel's response to all of this. And you've got to imagine what's happening here. Just like those two questions you just heard about. Is there a people that hear from God? Is there a people that God lives among? Well, it's easy for them to ask that question because they just conquered the Jewish people. They're there. It's a dark time. They're about to be executed again. And you're going to see what Daniel does in verse 14. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Woo! Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Come on. What do you do in a tense situation? Respond with anger? Respond with a little uh, fear and trembling? Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. Now, something we know about Daniel is Daniel had obviously been a student of the Tanakh. And he had, he had a special grace under pressure that shows that the words of Psalm 19 are true in his life. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Daniel was not... Uh, under a simple response kind of pressure, his soul was revived by the law of the Lord. The statue of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold. Than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Yeah. You see, we think of Daniel as just a special guy, but he loved a special law, and that's what enabled him to be warned and have a great reward and be the kind of person he was. Yeah. You have to imagine that Ariok, the commander of the the king of the known world, his guard. He's going out to kill, annihilate, demolish all of these wise men in the kingdom. Totally destroy them. And Ariok shows up. 
Put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a moment. He shows up to your doorstep. What do you do? Do you panic? Do you, you know, hit him in the face with a stick? Uh, Do you take a sword out and try to chop his throat off? What do you do in that situation? Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. What we're getting at tonight is that the word of God allows you to have grace in these situations where there is tremendous pressure and you must act righteously. Listen to Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Daniel had the word of God living and active inside of him. So when there was a tremendous amount of pressure in his life in this situation, the word of God is what came out. The wisdom from, that was produced from the word. The tact that was a product of the word living inside of him. It's what came out in these times of tremendous Amen. pressure. I love that Daniel was not flippant in his responses, but wise and tactful. When I think of wise and tactful, I think of one of my favorite passages, and it's Ecclesiastes 12.10. The teachers searched to find the right words. Yeah, we can learn from that. And what he wrote was upright and true. Notice the progression here. He sought out the right words, and then what he produced was upright and true. I would like to say that what you cultivate in practice is what you'll produce in your performance. Daniel had been living faithfully up to this point. Therefore, when he was put under pressure, what came out of him was wisdom and tact. That's a message for us. What are you doing day to day to prepare yourself for the day you are under that kind of pressure? And if you're experiencing those seasons of pressure, what is coming out of you? Is it turmoil and all kinds of ridiculousness or is it wisdom and tact like Daniel now the subject of wisdom that comes by the word of God Solomon's writings on the subject are numerous what I want to share with you in our conclusion on this particular subject about Daniel (laughs) Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah being anointed because they loved the word is Proverbs 15 23 through 24 A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. Man, and how good is a timely word? (laughs) Come on. Very good. The path of life leads upward for the wise. There's no qualifications about their circumstances. The path of life leads upward for the wise to keep him from going down to the grave. Look, in combination with this concept, Proverbs 25, 11 says a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. They're precious, and that's what's being poured forth out of these men. Daniel's response saved not only his own life, not only the life of his friends, but the lives of thousands in this kingdom. How could we not see them like apples of gold in settings in silver? There are so many connections between Daniel 1 and 2. And the most obvious one I'm going to get to in a minute. We found out in Daniel 1 that he could interpret dreams. That was an important note to find out uh, its fulfillment in chapter 2. But consider the connection in their behavior. What if they had not honored God? Where would they be now? Would they even be alive? What if they did not have confidence they could hear from God because of their behavior in the last chapter? 
What if there was nothing distinctive about them that gave them the courage and clarity to speak to Ariok? When you're considering the connections between Daniel 1 and 2, you should think on the connections between events in your life. One of the most tragic things that happens is the inability to associate the consequence of an action with the action itself. In this case, we're going to associate the merits of an action Hallelujah. with the action itself. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 15 and read through 16. He asked the king, king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for more time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Think about the initiative that Daniel is showing. Yeah. I wonder what built his confidence that way. Do you think maybe when he decided to take his stand on a simple matter of diet because every word of, of God was important to him and God came through and he was ten times better, do you think maybe he was soaring spiritually because of that? Come on. Yes. What if yesterday's failure was not about the failure itself at all? What if it was to keep you from having this kind of confidence today? Yeah. Yeah. Church success builds success. I find his confidence inspiring. In Daniel 1.17, it says to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now we see him in the second chapter, never having a recorded dream interpretation, and can we say... This is for all the marbles. Okay, it's your first time to hold a basketball. You believe you can do it well. And now you're center court and have to sink a shot from half court. I mean, this is a pretty big test, don't you think? Yes. yes. What built his confidence like this? The life that he's led every moment up to this moment. Oh, yeah. Church, there's a lesson in that. Here in the second chapter, we see the first mention of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar interacting ever. And you know what it's for? The intercession on behalf of the lives of other people. Talk about building from the outer terraces inward. Talk about caring about other people more than yourselves. This is the heart of the law of God. It's not just how we relate to our God, it is how we treat our fellow man in loving, truthful representation of God. God is not willing that any should perish, even a Babylonian astrologer. He would rather see them saved, and he uses Daniel to do it. Amen. The repeating pattern through history is the very same persecutors of the Jews owe their lives to the Jews they're persecuting. All too often that's been Christians. Let's pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Oh, I don't know if you catch what Daniel's doing right here. I mean, Daniel had, has just taken the initiative... He did not know the answer. There's a threat of death for all of the wise men. And he put himself forward even though he did not know the answer because he relied on his God. And then he has an immediate action. Say immediate action. Immediate action. Daniel's immediate actions were not withdrawing to a mountain alone to pray, 
but rather he involved his friends. Come on, church. He put himself forward, did not know the answer. Talk about faith. And then involves his friends. You see, this is not really the book of Daniel, although it's called that because Daniel wrote it. But this should be the book of the good figs, or should be called that rather, because this is about the good figs in captivity or the true Israelites that are in captivity but honoring their God. The Hebrew team that God himself chose and formed is exactly where Daniel went first to figure this out. We should be reading 1 Corinthians in the same fashion. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 16. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Not me, I have the mind of Christ. We collectively have the mind of Christ. It's, It's going to get clearer and clearer if this is new to you as we go through Daniel. Daniel did not interpret this dream alone. Daniel did not seek God for this dream's interpretation alone. No part of this is Daniel acting in independence, and every part of it, is, it shows through the pronouns throughout the chapter, is all of them together. Yeah. Daniel is just the one credited with the words. The same way it says Peter and John spoke and only one sentence comes out. Yeah. Daniel is the one envisioned as speaking, and they are all present in each of these situations. So let me ask you a question tonight. How many of you have spent the majority of your life in Christianity reading that 1 Corinthians 2 passage as singular? Come on. I have the mind of Christ. I. I I, got it. Me. Me. I. I have the mind of Christ. So I can do this. I just need to pray by myself somewhere and he's going to give me his mind and it'll be good, right? No. It's not only that we've been reading these passages in a singular fashion. We've also been looking at Daniel in a singular fashion as some great man of God apart from the other men that helped to strengthen him and give him the actual meanings of these dreams and strengthen him along the way in times of stress. Daniel was not a man by himself. He was a man with brothers who knew that even though he had the anointing to interpret dreams... He was going to put his best foot forward in faith, and then he was going to show his faith by what he did. And he ran to his brothers and said, guys, I did this. I believe it's the Lord. Let's get together and pray about this. And I'm confident that he will give us the mind of Christ in this situation. Another amazing passage that we've been reading in the singular that we need to stop and read in the plural is 1 Timothy 4.15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. That's just like what Daniel did. He gave himself wholly to those matters. He was diligent with them. And then he went to his brothers and laid everything out on the table so that all of them could see his progress for what it was. And they were able to progress together through it. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do... You will save both yourself 
and your hearers. There is no better time for us to be diligent like Daniel and his companions were. No better time to give ourselves wholly to the matters of Scripture like Daniel and his companions did. No better time to watch our life and doctrine closely and persevere in them together like Daniel and his companions did. Their lives together were on the line. But aren't our lives right now also on the line? Aren't right now we in a battle between life and death? Don't our own actions and our teamwork together as a family determine whether we live or die? Isn't that true, church? Hey, he said, Paul to Timothy, it will save yourself and your hearers. What Daniel's doing will save Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. But who else does it save? All the other ones. Yeah, you never know how much is hanging on your obedience. And if you did, you would want to work in a team. I promise that. Amen. (laughs) So let's go back to our repeating pattern before we read verse 19. That repeating pattern throughout the word is that an unspeakable horror is befalling a situation. But there is one nation on earth that God has given revelation to that will save the situation. Now, you Gentiles have come to share in that revelation, and now, we Gentiles, we must share in that responsibility as well. Amen. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Now, I just want to admit, this verse does not elicit the response uh, that it should most of the time. Why would he say, praise God? Because he just took a message to his brother that said, we're going to be killed unless we can <laughs> All of us are gone. He brings the matter before his brothers. He goes to sleep, and the revealer of mysteries shows him this life-saving mystery, this revelation. Amen. This reminds me of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Where are you at, Chris Riosaurus? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Now, it's worth noting he revealed this to a Jewish youth, to Hebrew youths, to who he speaks to. If you remember, we're in chapter 2, which is written in Aramaic. And it would be hard to overstate the extent to which Daniel and his friends are participating in the secrets of God. So take a look at the unique usage of the Aramaic word in the Bible. This word is raz or raz, whatever floats your boat. You can find this in Daniel 2.18, 2.19, 2.27, 2.28, 2.29, 2.30, and Daniel 4.9. Now, the vast majority of the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, so this limits the number of times Ra's can appear, because it's in Aramaic. But even with that, almost all of them are in Daniel 2. And God is about to reveal to Daniel and his friends the scope of Gentile history and the way in which it will fall under the dominion of God's kingdom. Come on. Come on. You catch how important that is? Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about a mystery, it'd be one thing if God was just revealing to his people (laughs) their future. It's way more than that. He's revealing to a Gentile ruler 
the history of the Gentile kingdoms that will follow yeah. and what their ultimate outcome is. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Pause for just a moment, Linton. It's not just poetry. He's praising him specifically for the deeds that he accomplishes. Did you hear that? He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Keep reading. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Now, we have to confess, these few verses contain so much that it was very tempting to go on a rabbit trail and spend the rest of the evening here. But instead, we want to elucidate a few points from it. The NIV, which we just read out of, is a dynamic translation. It's a good one for the most part, and it serves us well. In this particular case, we would like to read with you out of the NET translation, and then we're going to show you a slide on it. So Daniel 2, 20 through 22 in the NET. Let the name of God be praised forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. He changes times and seasons, deposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise. He imparts knowledge to those with understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and light resides within him, with him. How many things is it that you think are attributed to God in this passage? Just take a biblical guess. Yeah, give us that slide. Good job, church. Prior to this revelation given to Daniel and his friends, it would have been easy to think of the kingdom given to Israel as growing gradually in strength and power until it filled the whole earth. The Babylonian captivity determined that Israel would go into exile for 70 years. But the presumption would have been that they would be restored and grow gradually to fill the entire earth, much like the Solomonic Age. If you are an Israeli student reading your own history books, David and Solomon increased the kingdom and all the kings of the earth came in Solomon's day and there was biblical world dominion at that time. This first item of Daniel's praise is a really unusual one and I got stuck on it for quite some time today. <laughs> After receiving the interpretation that Daniel got, he says, I praise you God that you changed the times and seasons. We're about to read the interpretation of the dream of a Gentile king that details the history in advance of a period that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles and the trampling of the Gentiles. It seems to me that Daniel perceived not a shift in God's plan, but a shift in his understanding Come of on. God's plan. A period that Israel had not been warned about a great deal or looked forward to. A great deal. <laughs> For sure. It would seem that Israel is becoming aware through this chapter that there is far more difficulty in the kingdom of God being established on earth than simply going through a 70 years of captivity. If they were preterists prior to this chapter, 
meaning that the kingdom was now, they're all becoming pre-millennialist in this chapter. <laughs> they're all realizing that there has to be a sudden and dramatic change, and none of this is gradual. Other aspects of the slide that you may want to look into in the future, how about the concept of he gives wisdom yes. to the wise? Mm -hmm. I would think he'd give wisdom to stupid people. I mean, the wise already have something. It has a very strong correlation to Matthew 13, 12. The idea that he who has will be given more. See, Daniel is wise, and he's getting wisdom from interpreting a dream given to a Babylonian ruler about the nature of the time of the Gentiles that is coming. It gives him insight into what's going to happen to his own people. Yeah. We'll get more into that as we go. We have about an hour left, so we want to keep moving in verse 23. I thank and praise you, God. O oh God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. Who we, asked? We. You have made known to us. Mm. To who? Us. The dream of the king. So this brings up those two key questions that we asked earlier. Is there a people on earth that can hear from God? Yes. yes. Is there a people on earth that God lives among? Yes. Well, that is the subject of the we and us in the verse we just read. In verse 23, we are seeing the answer to the first important question. There is a people that can hear from God in spite of what the wise men had claimed. They are the same people that were given the Tanakh. They were the same people that honored the Tanakh in Daniel 1, right down to their diet, even though they risked their own lives to do it. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about the Jewish nation. And they are there in exile, and they can hear from God. This is the kind of people that God was always after in the creation of Israel. God wanted his own people that can hear from him and that he lives among. And you see that in Deuteronomy 6. Yeah. When, you pray to your God, when you pray to your God, who is like these people that their God is so near to them. As we get ready to move to 24, it's not just a Zionist message. And by the way, if you don't like that, something's wrong with you. The Bible is Zionist. Yeah. Yep. But secondly, it ought to give you encouragement. Just because God spanked his son didn't mean that he wouldn't speak to his son. If that doesn't encourage you, you haven't paid attention to your own life very well. <laughs> so listen to Linton as he reads 24 and 25. There's something kind of funny going on here. Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream is. Did you catch it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so in verse 24, the passage clearly states, Daniel went to Ariok and said, hey, I got something. <laughs> now, by the time that Daniel and Ariok reached the king, Ariok is already taking credit for what yes. Daniel did. Yes. yes. Wow, that's interesting. For those of you who work in a very bureaucratic kind of environment in your workplace, maybe you guys have experienced some of the same things with your carnal bosses in the workplace. Have you ever had a boss where 
Every good thing you do is credited to him, but every bad thing, every mistake you've made was definitely yours. You can just smile and think of him like Ariok. It's incredible that, that Daniel is so careful not to take credit for the revelation, and yet Ariok is so quick to try to take credit for the revelation. That's going to become important as we continue to read. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No, wise man. Wait. What was Daniel's very first word? No. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. According to the Babylonians, <laughs> what is Daniel's job description? Wise man. <laughs> But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay in your bed are these. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep doing this. It's just that y'all are a little sedate. We were here late. I feel guilty about it. So I think this should be fun. <laughs> I have found a man who can tell you what your dream means. When he didn't find him, Daniel, Daniel offered himself. So the king's got to be excited, right? Can you tell me? No. Nobody with my job description can tell you. And then look at the tact of Daniel. Uh, God has shown the king what will happen. Now the king was clueless about what would happen. That's why we're in this situation. He showed Daniel and his friends, not the king. But he's going to give it to him. There's something so special about men that study the Torah, get in the heart of God, and give it as if you got it. Come on, that's good. Wow. That's, uh, that's profound. It's almost like Daniel was not seeking his own glory, but the glory of his God and his father, because Daniel was a man who knew how to make other men great. Let's look at this slide and look at these questions. Is there a people on earth that can hear from God? Yes. Is there a people on earth that God lives among? Yes. So at this point in the chapter, you've already seen that God's answer, answer to the first question. It's his people. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all men who can hear from God from heaven. Now it will become clear to Nebuchadnezzar that there is a people on earth that God lives among. And verse 28 makes it clear that the vision is concerning latter days, and I'm going to call on my Hebrew scholar of a brother to help me pronounce what that is in Hebrew. That's Eric. Or Eric. Amen. Precisely. And that latter days was given to Nebuchadnezzar for Nebuchadnezzar. See, that would be an easy point to miss. Yeah. God didn't give the dream to Daniel. Yeah. God didn't give the dream to anybody else. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar Presumably because he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know it. Huh. Somehow or another, that's missed in all the commentaries. That's good. This is Babylonian-centric, and that makes it a bit weird. In the same way that the other prophecy that we were talking about, the other dream, Pharaoh and Joseph, was Egypt-specific. Yeah. Yeah. So Elder Eric touched on it. This is the nuance in it. We want you to catch it. The vision is Babylonian-centric rather than Jerusalem-centric. In that, it was given to the king of Babylon while he was in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Now, follow the connection. This is similar to Joseph interpreting 
Pharaoh's dream in Egypt and about Egypt and not Jerusalem. You guys following that? Yeah. Yeah. So as we pick up in verse 29 together, listen for those notes. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. Showed who? You. you. Who is you? Nebuchadnezzar. Guys, there are multiple reasons that we're emphasizing this. One is that it's necessary for you to interact with the text appropriately to realize this is a dream and vision about what is happening in Babylon and will happen in Babylon, but it will become particularly important when you're interpreting the rest of Daniel. When you, If you start with the basis that God gave Babylon a dream, Nebuchadnezzar a dream, so that they would know what happened after them. Get verse 30, and you're going to hear this a little more. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men. He may have wisdom greater than other living men, but that's not why he received the dream. But so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, ah. and that you may understand what went through your mind. The interpretation given to Nebuchadnezzar came through the Jewish people. Amen. How about that? And it informed the Jewish people as well. You catch what's happening here? Yeah. The answer to the dream, the interpretation, could come through no other people other than the Jews. But they were also informed about what would happen in the Gentile kingdoms as they interpreted. Amen. They're about to learn that there will be an extensive, somebody say extensive. Extensive. Extensive time period defined as the trampling of the Gentiles or the time of the Gentiles before the kingdom of God finally supplants the Gentile reign permanently. Mm. Get 31 through 33 for us. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. We had some difficult decisions to make today, and aside from the technological problems that we were having, it's difficult to know what to tell you about when. And we made a decision in going into the book of Daniel that we would not tell you what to think, but instead we would give you important information about how to think, because we trust that God will speak to this group collectively. This is an area where your study Bibles depending on your perspective, might be doing you dirty. Yes. So dirty. Just as a Acts 1 kind of Bible student, doing uh, hermeneutical studies of these metals, the most obvious thing in the world is usually not emphasized. We are going through the metals in a way that shows in, uh, decreasing intrinsic value. Gold is worth more than iron, and gold is mentioned first, and iron is mentioned last. And at the very same time that they have less intrinsic value, something else is happening. They have more earthly strength. Iron is much stronger. I mean, you may want a gold sword, but I'll take the iron one every day if we're in a sword fight. Yeah. Okay? There, there is a message in and of itself in that. We have a, a slide for you just to help you a little bit. And I want to tell you, you should not rush ahead and think you have this figured out because your Sunday school teacher, uh, Mrs. Better Than You, gave it to you <laughs> in second grade. 
in the dream, we have a head of gold, and then we have a chest and arms of silver. We have a belly and thighs of bronze, and then we have legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. The reason that we are illustrating these as first, second, third, and fourth is that's what the text does. You will find scholars that break this up into five, six, or seven. They want to separate toes and legs and all kind of things. But the text gives numerical designations to what we're talking about. You'll see that coming. The words first, second, third, and fourth appear in the text as we go. So we can't make it five to fit a model just because we want to. We can't make it something else. All we're really emphasizing at this point is that the metals themselves have less and less value as we progress in the description of the statue, but they have more and more earthly strength. Mm -hmm. Let's pick up in verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rocks that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Oh, come on, church. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Yes. Who is the rock? Jesus. Who is the rock? Jesus! Well, I want to help you a little bit and give you an interpretive key. So Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, Jesus! your father. No, he didn't say Jesus, did he? No. Huh. Wow, it didn't say Jesus. Why is it that nobody considered we could be talking about anything other than Jesus when this is clearly 600 years before his incarnation? Is it possible that you guys are so New Testament-centric New Testament -centric that you have forgotten to engage the text as the original audience would have? Is it possible that you are reading your own interpretations back into the text instead of following the development of the text? Well, would you like to learn or would you like to continue to be wrong? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion. He will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Now, while Christians reading this passage in Daniel, they tend to jump immediately to the conclusion that the rock refers to Jesus, and it does, that would probably not have been Daniel's first thought, being that he was studying Isaiah. Israel was not formed through human hands. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their lives all involved supernatural births that required God to open wombs. They were barren. Israel is not part of the table of nations in Genesis 10. Did you know that? But it is a nation formed by God and directed by him and not formed by man. We need to make room in our considerations for the likelihood, and we're calling it a likelihood, that Israel is in view. Not the Messiah, not Jesus, but the nation of Israel is in view in this prophecy every bit as much 
as the king of the Jewish nation. So Justin said that in a clumsy way, and I love him, but I'm just going to fix it. (laughs) Jesus is not in view to the original audience. The only reason that he's in your view at all is because you're benefited by the 600 years of history after this and then the Newer Testament. But the very fact that Abraham didn't come to your mind, although the scripture says it, that Isaac didn't come to mind, that Jacob didn't come to mind, shows that you are prone to misunderstand what is being said here. Precisely because you don't have the proper foundation that the Bible builds before ever revealing who Jesus is. This leads to mystical interpretations of this verse. This leads to the over-allegorization of this verse. I want to set you at ease so that you don't walk out of here with your socks in a twist under your toes. Of course it speaks about Jesus. But only Jesus as the head of the nation of Israel, which was cut out of a rock, but not by human hands. They share the same characteristics because they're the same substance. He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. When you spiritualize him and just make him the king of you every bit as much as everyone else, you miss what this prophecy is actually saying. Now there's another point that is, that is even as important. The rock that strikes the statue, it smashes the other elements physically because we are describing physical entities. Was Babylon just a spiritual entity? Or no. was there actually a kingdom? Actually a kingdom. Were the Medes or the Persians a, a spiritual entity? Or was there actually a kingdom? Actually a kingdom. Then why do we think that this rock is a spiritual force only crushing spiritual things? That's because you don't have Israel in view when you read it. You have made it mystical in your minds. And somehow or another... It's an ethereal kingdom just overcoming the hearts of men. That doesn't sound like smashing to me. No. No. Why don't we read it as they would have read it and see what it yields? Yeah. Are you brave enough to do that? Uh, yes. yes. So if you still have any questions, then the prophecy of Micah is a typical description among hundreds that we could read. Micah 4, 11, verse 13. Are you 13. guys ready to continue to get your minds blown? Yes. Turn to us to Micah chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 11. This is going to blow your mind tonight. Now you remember in Daniel, we talked about specific things. We talked about the nations. We talked about, we're in Daniel 2, so we're talking about how the nations have no understanding. They get dreams and they can't interpret them. The verse that we're in in Daniel 2 is talking about sheaves, talking about this chaff. Look at Micah 4.11 with us. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. Even though he told it to a Babylonian king. (laughs) He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. An exact representation of what we're reading in Daniel 2. Look at 13. Rise and thresh, Jesus. No. No. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hoofs of bronze and 
you will break to pieces many nations. Who is the subject matter of the scripture, church? Israel. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. You see, it's Israel in this passage in Micah 4 who is breaking, breaking the nations into many pieces. So Daniel 2, when we have a rock that was cut out and it becomes a mountain, what does a mountain usually symbolize in the word of God? A nation. <laughs> it's, it's a hermeneutical standard as you go through the word. So when you have a rock that becomes a mountain and takes over everything, what if we're talking about the nation of Israel? Oh, that's what it is. The destiny of the metals <laughs> described is that they become worthless as chaff, leaving no trace of their former glory in the days to come. Let me, let me help you in the Eric Amplified. You, uh, you're brilliant, Neb. You're, you're dazzling, man. And uh, you're even going to get saved. So you're, you're going to have a, a head of gold. And, and I've used you. I've used you to spank my own son. And I'm going to discipline your nation. But, but you're golden, man. And the kingdom coming after you. It's going to have some precious things in it, too. I'm going to use them to do some things for my people. They're going to be stronger in an earthly sense and not quite as valuable as what I'm going to do with you. And the kingdom coming after that one, uh, it'll be even stronger in an earthly sense, and I'll do some things for my people through them, but not quite as much. And by the time we reach the fourth kingdom, there won't be anything of value in it that came from me. It'll only be about earthly power and oppression. I think that carries a better sense of what the original audience would have read. Okay? And... We tend to think, because we come from Greek backgrounds, of uh, the kingdom of heaven as an off-world place. We tend to think of spiritual things as opposite of physical things. That's not within the Jewish framework or within the Bible at all. You can't separate the two. So when they read the words kingdom, they think kingdom, because that's what they're experiencing. The kingdom of God on earth was represented in Solomon's day. It was represented in David's day to varying degrees in all of the Judean kings' days. And now their kings have come to an end and no one is sitting on the throne. But who is? Gentiles. Gentiles are. And they're finding out just how long it's going to last and what they're going to have to go through to do it. But the revelation was given to the Gentile. And it took a Jew to interpret it. Now, not only does it save my life to interpret this for Caleb which is really cool. But in the end of it, Caleb still doesn't quite understand what we're talking about. But I do. (laughs) Okay? That's kind of what is happening here. Okay? You're still going to see Nebuchadnezzar stays relatively obtuse. But Daniel is not. His revelation keeps growing. And Jesus uses his words. And we'll pick up on that in a minute. Let's do 36. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Wow. So there's so many amazing things you could pull from this passage. But I'd like to highlight the first part of verse 36. This was the dream... And now we, we will interpret it. Oh, yeah. oh come on. There's a 
respond to that. Who is we? We is Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They are interpreting it. When have you ever heard that preached? But they were in a team together. Yeah, they had this grand revelation, and Daniel didn't say, I am the man of the hour. He included his team so that they all portray God's greatness together. Now, you can see the interpretation is that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar as the Babylonian Gentile power. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise for us because this was divinely initiated and announced through Jeremiah and Isaiah. For reference, let's read Jeremiah 27, 4 through 7. Are y'all still awake? Because yeah. Yeah. Yes. We, we, we could do this in a Sunday school fashion and tell you that it's great. Daniel's a great man of God. He heard from God, and maybe you can hear from God too, and we could just move on. Or we could help you understand your Bible on, well, maybe, maybe a level that will actually benefit you and inform your future instead of just playing Sunday school. Would y'all like to grow? Yes. Because yes. I know a lot of pastors, and they can regurgitate what they were taught in seminary, but they don't begin to understand it, and most of it's not right. And we're trying to give you something special. Amen. So Jeremiah 27, 4 through 7. Give them a message for their masters and say, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it. And I give it to anyone I please. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. Now God himself decided to make the biblical world subject to Nebuchadnezzar, initiating the time of the Gentiles. Say time of the Gentiles. Time of the Gentiles. He did this in a similar fashion to the way that God made the nation subject to David and Solomon in former times. This is the changing of seasons and times. Listen to Luke 21. Just to add to that a bit. It says, I give the kingdoms to anyone I please. Do you understand that God was pleased in his plan to hand the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar? We've seen a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. But earthly power in the Solomonic Age that was from the Euphrates River in the north all the way down to the Wadi of Egypt. Literal peace on earth for a time. And then Israel has begun to degrade to the point where they're in exile. And God is speaking through the voice of Jeremiah. I am giving for a time frame dominion to the Gentiles starting with the head of gold. Starting with Nebuchadnezzar. Man, this was a revelation to guys like Daniel who were hoping and expecting to go back to the way things had always been, go back to the Solomonic Age, and God is saying, we must go through the time of the Gentiles first. Then you will see me coming. If you thought 70 years was tough, how about four successive Gentile kingdoms? Luke 21, picking up in verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, what has already happened once? What will happen again? There are rhythms of kingdoms. Surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. 
For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. Oh, Are you you're catching it? Yes. Yes. There is a time period where worldwide dominion is given to Gentiles. Yeah. But it's finite. It, it's, it's not forever. Praise God. Okay? And praise God for that. Yeah. And I, I don't want to get into this whole debate because you, you would lose. But it didn't happen <laughs> in the first century because in the first century, all that was written was not fulfilled, which is what Luke 21, 22 says. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. So it, it cannot be. We'll cover those things towards the end of the study again. But here, I, I want you to see Jesus is referring to a specific time called the times of the Gentiles. Yeah. How many Christians do you know that can begin to explain that? It's derived from Daniel 2, and Jesus understood the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. Paul also understood the book of Daniel. Romans 11.25 says, I don't want you to be ignorant. We'll just pause on that for a minute. <laughs> of this mystery. Oh, wow, that word that, that occurs in Daniel 2 more than anywhere else. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Amen. Now engage with this for a minute. This means that the times of the Gentiles involves both their reigning in the world and their trampling of God's people. But it's not binary. That's not all that it involves. It also allows for Gentiles to be saved during the same time period. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar is going to be yes. in the next few chapters. At the closing of this period, the prophets and apostles all point to something. The salvation and restoration of Israel. Hallelujah. Which is what Daniel 2 is actually about. Mm -hmm. The time period of the Gentiles followed by the kingdom being restored to Israel. Let's read verse 39 with, uh, with some expediency. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. <clears throat> Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. All right, let's show that slide that we have again. So this is the statue that he's seeing. And notice that he was told the next kingdom after Nebuchadnezzar would be inferior to his. Then a third, one of bronze, will rule. So we have a decreasing in value. Gold, silver, bronze, iron. But we have an increasing in strength as those kingdoms progress. We see that there's a first, a second, and a third. The first kingdom is the head of gold. And we find that in this chapter, Daniel 2.38. The second kingdom is the chest and arms of silver. And we're going to see that in Daniel 5.28, 31, 6.28, and 8.20. Then we have a third kingdom. That is the belly and thighs of bronze. That will be in Daniel 8.21. And then we have a fourth kingdom. Legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. That is unmentioned. 
In the coming days, you will notice that the successive rulers fit this model perfectly in their recorded deeds. As the kingdoms progress, each ruling kingdom shows less divine value and more and more in human strength, usually through things like oppression. And by the time we get to iron, it is totally oppressive. The first, second, and third kingdoms are identified within Daniel by name. Are you surprised to hear that? The book of Daniel itself, we're going to read the references for you. Not in some weird mystical way that you have to struggle to put it together. (laughs) Literally names the kingdoms for you. Then they will all rule the whole earth from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar's view in Babylon. So from Nebuchadnezzar's view, what is considered the whole earth, that is what they will rule. So we can't read into this text countries like North America and Canada and Fiji because they didn't exist in Nebuchadnezzar's view. Remember this prophecy is given to him. A small hint for you. You also cannot read into the text any empire that never ruled Babylon because it was given to a Babylonian king who was ruling the world and each of these kingdoms are to take over what he was doing. So if the kingdom in view doesn't rule Babylon, that's a problem. And this is why we're saying this is Babylonian-centric, not Jerusalem-centric. Different kingdoms might rule over Jerusalem and not rule over Babylon. This prophecy requires that they rule over the area that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over, which certainly includes Babylon. One of the main takeaways from that is that as we progress in Daniel, you're going to see in the following chapters that the person who received the revelation, the people that received the revelation, that is going to shift. It's going to shift from Babylon to the people of God, and it's going to look a little bit different. But you will have clarity because you will understand that chapter 2 is dealing with Babylon And the following chapters are dealing with the people of God. Nick, help us out with these identifications from the text. So check this out. So Daniel 5.28, I'm sorry, Daniel 2.38 is where Daniel explicitly states the first kingdom, that head of gold. It says, I don't have that one here. Does somebody have Daniel 2.38 to read? Right here. Praise the Lord. In your hands he has placed all mankind... And the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. That's Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Peshat in the text. The first kingdom is Babylon. So since our slides have a bit of a snafu in them, sweetheart, put that text, that uh, slide back up. So under first kingdom, head of gold, you should probably write Daniel 2.38. Now we're going to walk you through some more. So Daniel 5.28 is going to be under the second kingdom. And you can write down just right off the cuff. Daniel 5.28, Daniel 5.31, Daniel 6.28, and Daniel 8.20 as pointing to the second kingdom, which is the chest and arms of silver. So Daniel 5.28, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to... The Medes and Persians. 
Interesting. Second Kingdom language here. If you've ever wondered, like, well, where do you get off combining the Medes and the Persians and calling it the Medo-Persian Empire? No long explanation is needed. The scripture says it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it says it right here, given to the Medes and Persians. Wow. So Daniel 5, 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So like we said again, the second kingdom is Medo-Persian. What about Daniel 6, 28? So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we have a Medo-Persian empire, which is the second kingdom. And Daniel 8.20, the two-horned ram, we're going to get here. And it's also going to blow your mind, but we'll give you a little taste tonight. Daniel 8.20. We call that chapter the super goat. <laughs> <laughs> the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of... Media and Persia. Why do we group them? Because the book of Daniel in the scripture time and time again groups those two kingdoms as the second kingdom. Daniel 8.21. This will go under the third kingdom. Daniel 8.21 says, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So the third kingdom, according to Daniel 8.21, is Greece. You guys get those notes down? Yes. Good. Well, we're going to be reiterating those concepts over and over and over. Don't feel bad if you missed a scripture. We're going to take those slides and build on them as we walk through this book. We'll keep walking through them so that they get clearer and clearer in your understanding. The fourth one is where all the speculation is. Okay? And uh, we're not going to solve that for you tonight. Not that we can't. It's that we don't want to. We're going to pick up in verse 40 with the words, finally. Finally, hmm. meaning at the end. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things, breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the other things. So we've identified three of the four, but this fourth kingdom is unnamed. We know that it will crush and break all others, and that it will be stronger than all others. It is of less intrinsic value than the other one. Mm -hmm. This is why we've laid this groundwork so we don't fall into false assumptions of what this fourth kingdom would be. And we're going to have some fun because we have a particular pericope that can be puzzling. <laughs> now, if you don't know what a pericope is, Elder Eric is going to define it because his vocabulary is extensive. Your pericope is your subject headings in your Bibles that were clearly not inspired. This one comes from the NASB. And I do love the NASB, but NASB was so bold as to tell us who the fourth kingdom is, even though Daniel doesn't tell us. Oh, wow. It's, it's good of them to do that, and if they're right, it's an incredible help. But if they're wrong, it's certainly a problem. Okay? We need to take note that the only kingdom not specifically identified in these statues within the text of Daniel, unless you have a nasty, is the fourth <laughs> kingdom. And yet, you will never hear more certainty from biblical expositors about any kingdom than the fourth kingdom. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. But what happens if some of those assumptions are wrong? 
And we've never come across the wrong assumption before in our Christian walk, have we? No, never. Guys, so in the coming weeks, we will be sharing our thoughts on this enigmatic verse. Okay, this kingdom is the subject of much discussion, and we will tell you what we think about it. But for now, we're cautioning you rightly against making assumptions, because assumptions can prevent you from actually learning and growing. Okay? Making assumptions that are not delineated in the text particularly. If Daniel doesn't specify it, then we're not going to make assumptions that may or may not be correct. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 41 and get down to 43 together. How many of you in here have a pericope in your Bibles that say Rome? Look at that. Okay, That's how widely held that view is. And maybe that makes it more meaningful to you. It also can make it more difficult to unwrench your view if you were wrong. Because I was taught a lot of things that were wrong, demonstrably wrong in the scripture, and yet ardently held to by people. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be, will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixed with clay. In all of our prophetic insight, we failed to realize that it would take an hour and 40 minutes to get here. And uh, that's a problem. But I have a feeling we've reached a place that's interesting to you. Oh, yes, sir. Yes. No? Yes. 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 There are a lot of things going on in this verse, and we, we, again, don't want to tell you what you should think about it. That's your job. We do want to give you some things that may cause you to know how to think about it. To start with, there is a possible word play in this. Let's, let's put that slide on the screen. The word mixed, shockingly, in Hebrew, is a red. And uh, also, in Hebrew, the designation for the mixed peoples of Arabia happens to be Arab. If we wanted to put that in a more English pronunciation, when you want to say Arab, you are saying mixed. And when you say Arab, you are also designating a specific people group. Now, I'm not telling you that is the right way to exegete this verse. I'm telling you that it is possible. If you did do that, then Daniel 2.43 would read something like this in a typical Hebrew wordplay. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will be Arab and will thus not remain united just as iron does not mix with clay. If you'd like to see another interpretation like that, all you have to do is get to Daniel 5 and God himself does the same thing with meany, meany, tackle persons. We will cover that when we get there. Meaning that his interpretation is based off of a word play of what is being said. And this may be one of the ways to hint at what a kingdom will be without having Nasby write it in your pericope for you. <laughs> because Nasby might be wrong. We're not saying they are, we're just saying they are. <laughs> there is another issue in this verse. And, uh, 
We could spend the whole night on it, but my brothers have some other things to get to. And I gotta say, it's intriguing to me, but I just want to tell you it's very, um, it's a remote possibility in yeah. my mind. Y'all know how much I love Genesis 6, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you know that I, I believe that there was a celestial contamination on the earth prior to Noah's flood, and according to Genesis 6, 4, afterwards also? Well, let's just do it. On this next slide, the phrase, the people will be a mixture, is actually not what the Hebrew, or rather Aramaic in this case, says. You can see the words defined on the slide. It literally says that there'll be a mix Mix maybe even in quality is one way to read Hayah there in the seed of man. Well, that could have dramatic implications. It is possible to read this as the fourth kingdom has some kind of mingling between something that is not the seed of man and something that is. Wouldn't that have a profound impact on Jesus saying it would be like the days of Noah? But that's a sensational thought. We're not telling you it's true. I even think it's less likely. I think it's more likely that what we're talking about is mixing among the seed of men. But the text definitely allows, in the syntax and the grammar, whether it's a minority position or not, it does allow for the idea that the seed of man is mixing with something that is very much not the seed of man. Right. Again, we're not going to tell you what to think. We're just going to give you some tools so you can figure out how you should be thinking about these things. Whatever your view is, this fourth kingdom is declared in the scripture to be divided. It's declared in the scripture to be characterized by feet and ten toes. I'm not going to beat this horse forever, but I'm not aware of ten divisions in the Roman Empire in the first century. I just don't think they fit the model, at least not in the first century, and maybe you're thinking, well, they'll revive. All of Italy is with you in that hope, but I'm not. Um, (laughs) Hey, why don't we pick up in verse 44? In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. All right, so we're just going to repeat a few Peshat statements. The first one is that the kingdom that the God of heaven sets up, it crushes. It brings an end to the Gentile powers that are mentioned. It doesn't sing them gospel songs, rub their shoulders, give them donuts for showing up at church. It doesn't progressively take over. It doesn't just gradually win them over. (laughs) In the vision, it crushes and brings to an end Gentile power. That is a really important point that is missed by Christians with great big old hearts and maybe not that bright uh, interpretive methods. (laughs) The second one we want to notice is that the kingdom that is being mentioned will be in the time of those kings, those kings that were mentioned, meaning that the kingdom will be existent during them. It will be in the time of those kings. So the kingdom is present, but it is not yet a crushing, destroying of the Gentiles present. Hmm. Almost like it's a hand 
but not fully here yet. Now you're at least a partial this, that, or the other, right? We're not in the kingdom now, and yet we're waiting for the kingdom, or we are kind of in the kingdom, but not in its fullest manifestation. In Daniel's vision, the kingdom is present during all of the Gentile powers, but it does not crush the Gentile powers until we get to the fullness of the time of the Gentiles. The third Peshat statement is that the kingdom will never be destroyed. It will never be given to another people. Uh, what? Another people is in what? Another people is in somebody besides Israel. It also says it will endure forever. The fourth Peshat statement, every kingdom discussed is real, physical, and tangible, including God's kingdom. We're not just talking about a spiritual warfare. This fa- these facts may be why this question was asked in the opening chapter of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, the disciples saw something in Jesus' ministry, and they asked him a question. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, don't worry about it. It's in your hearts. We're just loving each other. We'll we'll sing songs together and the kingdom is just everywhere. No, that's not what he says. And in verse 7, he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. They were looking, they were reading the book of Daniel, and they were looking for a tangible kingdom to appear and crush the Gentile kingdoms that they were surrounded by, namely Rome. And Jesus did not do it. Now, if if you just aren't putting this together, that's that's okay. We're going to help you. Nick's going to, Nick and Peyton are going to walk us through a list of scriptures. But even the prophecy given to Mary is that Jesus would sit on the throne of his father David. And there was no throne of his father David present right. in that day. Yeah. And so people, are, they spiritualize this. They say, oh, well, he's sitting on the throne of David. Well, I love David very much, but he was not at the right hand of the father. The throne of David was an actual throne. One in Jerusalem that Jesus must sit on. And the apostles are really concerned. They're questioning how this, I mean, they're getting power of the Holy Ghost. They're excited about all the things that you Pentecostal charismatics are excited about, except something is really missing. Another way to ask their question is how much longer is this Gentile period going to go on? In Acts 15, they come to the conclusion that they're in the time of the tabernacle of David. It's not time for the permanent dwelling on earth yet. It's not time for the physical Solomonic kingdom on earth yet. It's not yet time. There's, we're going to save some of these oppressing Gentiles. And of course, the book of Acts records that history. Okay? But what we're missing as Christians by over-allegorizing and spiritualizing this is we think that the kingdom is here in some kind of mystical sense. The apostles didn't. They, they were waiting for its actual physical establishment. Yes. So with that in mind, with the fact in mind that the disciples were looking at a resurrected Messiah in Jesus and saying, wow, maybe the time is now for that real, physical, tangible kingdom to manifest on the earth like the days of David and Solomon. 
Maybe it's time right now that we're going to fully possess the land, that we're going to fully possess our enemies. That was what they were expecting during that time. Look at these following scriptures. We're going to go through them quickly tonight, but we want you to hear the very tangible, physical nature of the kingdom on the earth that will be here and that will never be uprooted ever again. Amen. This is Isaiah 60, 18 through 21. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they, Israel, the people of God, will possess the land forever. Amen. Amen. Now, are we talking about like some weird ethereal land of Israel here? No. No, no. no we are talking about a very physical, tangible land grant that the Lord is going to give his people forever. It is very tangible, and it is eternal. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 38 through 40. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Wait, those don't actually exist, do they? <laughs> oh, no, they're very real. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. my goodness. Tangible and eternal. The measuring line will stretch out from there straight to the hill of Gareth and then turn to Goa, the whole valley where dead bodies are uh, and ashes are thrown. And all the terraces out to Kidron, the Kidron Valley on the east, far as the corner of the horse gate. You couldn't make this up. It's very real. <laughs> they will be holy to the Lord. Yeah, I'd love to know what somebody's spiritual interpretation is <laughs> of the horse gate. Yeah, I don't know how you can spiritualize it. That, listen to how this finishes. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. Demolished. If you're not catching it, the yeah. theme of these, as Judah picks up in Ezekiel, the theme of these is there is something that was not foreseen by most of the Jewish people, a reign of Gentile kings over them. And that reign is finite, and it will come to an end, and the physical, real kingdom of God will again be in the hands of a Jewish Messiah with his nation on the earth and some Graftians like you and I. They have joined them in this responsibility. And the prophecies that we're pointing to are about when the rock crushes the feet of the Gentile statue, yeah. when the mountain fills the whole earth, what it will look like. And it does not look like flying away and going to a cloud in the heavens. No Hebrew prophet ever said that. No verse in the New Testament says that. That is an invention from the medieval period or fully evil period, however you want to think about it. <laughs> I have two more passages for you before we get back to verse 45. But hear this continued language. Ezekiel 37, 25 through 28. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. The land where your fathers lived. They didn't live in spiritual environment. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. 
My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Saints, is there a temple standing in Jerusalem today? No, no, no. Then it has not been established forever, but it will be in a very physical land with yes. descendants ruling and reigning with Christ and the dwelling place of God. Amen. Now, in light of what you just heard relating to the throne of David, the city of David being set up, those of you who are familiar with Amos and a reference to Acts 15 earlier should be thinking about these concepts as I pick up back in verse 13 of chapter 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people. Where do they have to? In a Gentile kingdom, they're huh. in captivity. He's saying, I will bring them back in these days. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Amen. Okay, we're not rebuilding ruined cities in heaven. We're rebuilding ruined cities in Jerusalem. Yeah. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. Amen. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted, for the land I have Given them, says the Lord your God. There are a lot of things that I would like to get into, but with three minutes on the clock, I don't think we can. Let me just say it like this. I'm fully aware that each of you are stones in the temple and collectively the people of God are the temple. I probably taught you that before you knew it. Understand that more than one thing can be true. Mm -hmm. yeah. You yeah. can be the dwelling place of God and there can be a physical temple in a physical city. Uh, there may be quite a few chapters of Ezekiel dedicated to just that concept. But sticking with Daniel, is that all right if we get back to Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Let's do Daniel 45. Somebody, uh, Justin, read 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. You remember when Hezekiah was uh, was told that since he showed his treasuries to Babylon, that uh, his sons would be taken off and yeah. unique. <laughs> um, and, and Hezekiah was glad because it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. Yeah. I don't know how Nebuchadnezzar uh, took this personally, but I think he was just glad that, the, that it concerned the future. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen in his lifetime. If you want to grab a few things, start thinking about the way in which that rock is both the nation and the leader of the nation of Israel. Okay? And don't, don't think in one term or the other. You cannot separate Jewish, uh, the Jewish identity of Jesus from his Messiahship. The nation and the leader of the nation are spoken of together. Although the kingdom is present during all of the others, its triumph is in the days of the fourth kingdom. Its, its climactic ending of the Gentile rule is presented as at the feet of the statue in the fourth kingdom. The rulership of the world, well, it will be taken back from the Gentiles and a throne of David will be established. Okay, A, a real geopolitical kingdom 
will be established. Every other kingdom was a real kingdom. I don't know why you would think this one is any different, <laughs> but for whatever reason, Christians do. Both the nation and the Messiah, they have qualities that could be defined as not cut out by human hands. It's true of Messiah in his virgin birth, but it's also true of Israel in that they're the one nation that God called into being. Yeah. Uh, okay? Um, the rock, it becomes a mountain, and it fills the whole earth. Whatever Solomon's age was, this age will be better. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Not lesser, better. And I just don't think the kingdom reigning in your hearts quite surpasses Solomonic age from an Israeli perspective. And they're the guys that would be reading this book first. Yeah. We're going to go through a few other observations here. And uh, I'm just going to kick the first one off because I can. <laughs> and at this point, it's like kicking a puppy, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> the stone is presented as becoming a mountain. And there's no hint that that's a gradual process. Okay, we don't we don't see the stone become a hill and the hill grow and become a mountain. It's presented as a sudden event. Christianity did not suddenly fill the whole earth in the first century. It, it, it didn't do that. It didn't do any of the, it didn't crush all the Gentile kingdoms either. Though Christ came in the days of the Roman Empire, and that's why everybody thinks it's the fourth empire, he certainly did not destroy it. Oh, okay, I mean, yeah. think through that for a minute. That's, that's not a valid interpretation. During Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire did not have ten kings at once. Those ten toes were not present. Yet, Nebuchadnezzar's statue suggests that when Messiah, when Christ comes to establish his kingdom, ten rulers will be in existence, and they will also be destroyed by him. The next one, though Christ is currently, right now, the chief cornerstone to the church, we learn that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, and he's also a stone that causes unbelievers to stumble, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, Christ is not yet the smashing stone as he will be when he comes again. Come on. Mm. Now the stone... Messiah will crush and end all, all the kingdoms of the world, but the church is not and will not conquer the world's kingdoms. However, the Israel of God will. Mm -hmm. And the Israel that God causes to triumph will be a real kingdom, and the millennial reign describes this. So think through this for a moment. Church media marketing campaigns are not going to progressively take over the world. There will be a real, purified, righteous Israel of God with their Jewish king returning, and that will conquer every other kingdom yeah. permanently. Amen. Hey, do you remember yeah. at the triumphal entry? Uh, it's Matthew 21. It's, it's a quote from uh, Psalm 118. If you fall on the stone, what does it do to you? Breaks you to pieces. It, if the stone falls on you, what does it do? Crushes you. No matter what your position is to the Israel that God has created, it will break all other kingdoms to pieces. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. David was the prototype. Leaders didn't want him to be 
the king of the nation, but they couldn't stop him. The other nations are a prototype with David in a sense. They, they tried to stop him from it, and they couldn't. That is the idea here. God will cause his nation to be everything that he ever said that it would be. And you see that in the lives of these four Hebrew youths. Mm -hmm. you, you see what a genetic Israeli that is in proper relationship with the Tanakh that falls in love with Messiah does. All right, Brother Linson, get verse 46 and 47 for me. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. All right, we admit this passage might be a bit peculiar, but the honest truth is that people have made way, way, too much of it in negative areas and ways. Verse 47 interprets what happened between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. He says, surely your God is the God of gods. People get hung up on the idea that he's presenting an offering before Daniel. Daniel's instructing him about the God of gods, and you hear out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth that he's exalting that king. What we want to point to, though, that is actually beautiful, that is rooted in the scripture and not speculation, is Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, just like the same language, because of the Lord, Amen. who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. See, these, these Jews are foreshadowing what will happen with all of the nation because they are that righteous Israel of God who are standing on the word of God and obeying his will. And it's a little picture of what will happen in the end. So I would just offer a couple things here. The text allows for the fact that Nebuchadnezzar brought an offering to Daniel. You may have seen that. You may have walked through translations doesn't tell you what he did with it. Maybe he is giving an offering to Daniel for Daniel to give to his God. Okay? You, you have to figure that out. Yeah. Even though you could read this a couple ways, I would offer to you that Daniel doesn't seem like the kind of man that would allow somebody else to worship him. Yeah. Okay? And verse 47 clarifies the entire thing. The words out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth is surely your God is the God of gods. Mm -hmm. That combined with Daniel's earlier refusal to take credit for even the interpretation yeah. ought to leave no doubt in your mind that there's nothing funny going on here. We simply have an understanding problem. Okay? The beauty of Isaiah 49, though, is that more of this behavior is predicted. Yes. During the time yeah. of the Gentile dominion over the people of God, and prior to the establishment of the physical kingdom of God on earth, there will be many kings that will lay flat on the ground in acknowledgement that the God of the Jews is indeed God over all. Amen. Amen. This is beautiful because it didn't leave us out. Okay? Uh, this might be what Paul is talking about when he says he's bound all men, Jew or Gentile, over to disobedience that he might have mercy on all men. But we are not homogenous in the sense that we've lost national identities. 
because there still has to be a kingdom given to a very specific people, and you were a mysterious Gentile graft in yeah. with those people, like Ittai, yeah. or, or like Rahab, or, or like any of the others that foreshadowed it. There's room in God's household for everyone, but his household was designed for the nation that he designed it for. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all his wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained we want you to see that here again, Jews in a terrible position are elevated to prominence for doing nothing other than honoring and revering God. Man, if that's not a repeating theme in the Bible, well, we're going to invite the pastors to come and close. We think it's probably also pertinent that you take note that Daniel alone was not elevated. Also, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were elevated. Yeah. And they're in two specifically different, specified localities. Yeah. That, that's important as we move forward. Um, why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet. When you are contemplating the things that you learned tonight, you could get deeply into eschatology, and I would love you for that. But I would rather you get into the position that no matter where God allows Israel to dwell, whether in Babylon or in Egypt or in some future exile, anyone who honors the Tanakh of God and longs for Messiah will rise to positions of prominence in the land. Yeah. Because that is the kingdom that is taking over the whole world and not any Gentile power. Amen. Were you guys richly blessed by tonight's teaching? Yes. 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 One of the many things that we were enriched by was the character of Daniel that was also reflected in his friends. And that was, there is something special about a man who studies, loves God's word, Torah, standing in God's presence and getting God's heart and mind about a matter then only turned and imparted into someone else as it was as if it were first originated inside of them. They get that part of revelation. That's what we're praying that what happens to you tonight. As he's been shared the revelation that they have from loving God's word and standing in his presence to become just as native and default inside of you of God's heart for his people and his plan engage with the content that you learn from tonight. Ask God to show you even more things in his word of what you study. And he will reveal it. There's a promise that the God that we serve is a revealer of mystery to those that he loves. And he's longing to give these mysteries to us. One thing I also saw in parallel is the same exact character in Paul. When he writes in Colossians 1, 25 and 26, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery 
hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Do you see the impartation of what he received into others? That's what we're praying for you. My encouragement to you tonight is this recording is going to be online in the next 25 to 30 minutes before most of you get home. You should take time this week, even with Thanksgiving Day, and go back over these. The correct notes are going to be online. The slides are there for you. You should allow this revelation. This is having to undo some things that we think we know. This is having to work through some things that we've already decided that we think about the text. You're going to need to have this in for the weeks that are coming up ahead. You're going to want to listen to this with the notes right there. You're going to want to push pause and think about what these men have said to us tonight so that we can allow the revealer of mysteries to reveal those mysteries to us so that we might have the mind of Christ. Amen? Amen. Come on, put your hands in the air and let's pray together as we close tonight. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for revealing mysteries to us tonight, mighty God. Lord, we want to thank you primarily that you've allowed us to be able to push aside carnal doctrines, Lord, and put your nation Israel at the center of everything that we do. Lord, we want to thank you that because of your faithfulness to Israel, Lord, you will also be faithful to us, mighty God. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, for the revelations that you're bringing to us tonight. Lord, we also want to close with thanksgiving, Lord, with the encouragement that we received from Daniel's life tonight. Lord, Daniel could have easily tried to do it by himself. Lord, he could have easily tried to take credit and stand before Nebuchadnezzar by himself, but he didn't, mighty God. Lord, he went straight to his brothers and prayed together in unity. Lord, he went straight to the king and said, hey, I can't do this by myself. I need my brothers with me. Lord, we gain revelation through that tonight, mighty God, and we say, we can't do it alone, and we don't want to do it alone, mighty God. Lord, we are lifting up each other, mighty God, as we walk forward. We're dependent on your revelation together, mighty God, and we will also, in the future, rule and reign together with your people. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.